Good morning. It is the first Sunday in Lent, the 18th of February, 2024. And be a bit of a more laid back stream than usual because uh, it's Sunday. <laughs> and um, here's the general plan of things. We're going to talk about Cardinal Burke has a homily he gave on Ash Wednesday. It's magnificent. It's a very good thing to listen to for um on a Sunday for Lent to really help ground yourself. After that, we're going to talk, give a brief update on the cathedral funeral situation that I reported on yesterday because the cathedral has responded. And after that, we'll go to something Cardinal Zen has said. And I'm giving you my order of operations today because if it's a Sunday and for some of you, you only want uplifting things from uh, church leaders today. You know, you think Cardinal Burke giving you a Lenten homily is a great thing. That's all you want to hear. So I'm giving you the heads up now that this is the plan today. So that's where you are. You can tune out after that. All right. So if I'm a little sluggish today, not, did not sleep as much as I would have liked last night. But, it, you know, busy family day yesterday. So that's, you know, something you deal with, especially after you have been ill for several weeks. <laughs> so, all right, let's go right to this. We go to... Cardinal Burke from his website. If you're not familiar with Cardinal Burke's website, it is cardinalburke.com, and he has homilies and things that he posts there. And you can apparently even get on an email list to get to receive them. I think I'm on that, but I've never received them, so they're probably getting lost in a promotion filter or something. But here is his Ash Wednesday sermon, given at the Minor Basilica of Saints Celsus and Julian in Rome on Ash Wednesday. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We begin the observance of the season of Lent by uniting ourselves to our Lord in his Eucharistic sacrifice, the sacramental renewal of his sacrifice on Calvary. Our sincere participation in the Holy Mass today is both the recognition of our sinfulness, of our need of salvation, and the expression of confidence in God's all-merciful response to our contrition, of confidence in the help of divine grace and in eternal life. Thus we will pray our over offerings in the secret. Lord, we implore you, make us fit to offer you these gifts which, with which we celebrate the beginning of this August mystery. In his commentary on the sacred liturgy for Ash Wednesday, Blessed Ildefonse Schuster reminds us that the mystery of grace of the Lenten season is the Paschal mystery. He writes, quote, In the secret, we ask God to give us the right disposition in which to offer to him the solemn sacrifice that inaugurates the Paschal season. For the ancient liturgical terminology, Easter commenced on Maundy Thursday with the Koina Domini, the Mass of the Lord's Supper. Hence, a particularly suitable phrase describes the sacrifice of this first day of Lent as the opening rite to the Paschal cycle. Ipsius Venerbalis Sacramenti Celebramus Exordium. My apologies for my terrible Latin. We celebrate the beginning of this August mystery. The Lenten observance is called a sacrament or mystery to signify the strong grace for sanctification, which it offers to souls. It is the grace of a deeper knowledge of Christ, of a fuller welcome of Christ in the soul, of a more faithful cooperation with the sevenfold gift of the Holy Spirit by which Christ dwells with us always. The Lenten observance is off entering more faithfully and generously into the divine life won for us by the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, most perfectly contained and communicated in his Eucharistic sacrifice. Our participation in the Holy Eucharist is the form of our Christian life of communion with Christ in the total oblation of self, in the carrying of the cross, and in the culmination of the oblation, in the attainment of the destiny for which we carry the cross with Christ, eternal life. 
Blessed Alphonse Schuster describes the richness of our Lenten observance. Quote, The fruit of this first day of fasting is the spirit of inward contrition and of a true return to God, outward sign of penitence being useless unless the heart has resolutely renounced sin. This is what the lesson from Joel teaches us. Our elder brothers used to rend their garments, tear their hair, and sprinkle dust on their heads in signs of mourning and grief. But this is not what God demands when he sends chastisements upon his people. By depriving them suddenly of those temporal blessings, by the abuse of which they were becoming still more hardened in sin, he desires to call them to a complete change of life. Conscience of our own sinfulness and of the deadly corruption of sin which besets the church and society, we turn with all our hearts to our Lord. He responds to our contrition by inviting us to be true to our communion with him in the Eucharistic sacrifice, to pray more ardently throughout each day, to discipline more strictly our use of the goods with which he has blessed us, and to give more freely from our substance for love of our brothers and sisters, especially those in most need. Our embrace of the Lenten observance is most demanding, but it is not saddening, for it is the means of a deeper life in Christ. Let us recall daily the instruction and promise of our Lord in today's gospel. And when you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that they fa that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. May the ashes sprinkled upon our heads today be both the sign of contrition for the sins which we have committed and the sign of our confidence in the help of divine grace to reform our lives and to transform the world. With a spirit of inward contrition and a true reform to God, let us lift up our hearts, one with the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the purest heart of St. Joseph, to the glorious pierced heart of Jesus, open for us in his Eucharistic sacrifice. May our life in Christ in the Holy Eucharist we celebrate be our greatest treasure. Thus may our hearts be in his most sacred heart always. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That is the sermon for homily of Cardinal Raymond Burke. And I will have a link to that post in my show notes today at return to tradition.org. I'm going to briefly check the live chat here before we move on. Good morning to everybody checking in. Um, if you uh, do hit the like button, that would be really appreciated. As Flebitis says in the chat, it does actually help uh, us push uh, the YouTube system in our favor. Or if you're listening to another platform, it uh, there too. So good morning to everybody. And now let's go and move on with our stories for the day. And I want to do so by first, before we go to any of our other news stories, we do what we like to do from time to time, which is check in with the unique and sole expression of the Roman right. And here you see a mass in, it looks like Poland. Um, it's a literal clown mass. Yes, that is a actual clown at a, looks like a children's mass doing clown things on in the sacristy or at the or rather by, near the altar near the tabernacle that is your periodic update from the unique and sole expression of the roman right and remember that is what is allowed in the church of the uh, of the unique and of the new advent that is what's allowed in the synodal church while our traditional liturgies that were good enough to feed the saints <laughs> you know which developed organically from the first century and it fed fed and nourished the saints of all time is apparently divisive and destruct destructive of church unity meanwhile clown masses are apparently not yes clown masses are a very real thing and they are actually 
uh, a real threat to church unity. Um, so let's go now to, let me see if I can find my story, that story in my tab here. All right, we're going to go next to the update from the cathedral because they actually did respond to everything going on. I don't know what you will think of this response. Um, I haven't heard a Cardinal Dolan say anything yet about why he allowed things to happen. The story is apparently that uh, everybody was deceived a little bit, that uh, the nature of the person's funeral was going to be, was misrepresented to the church authorities. We shall see. So here's a very brief response from St. Patrick's Cathedral. Thanks to so many who have let us know that they share our outrage over the scandalous behavior at a funeral here at St. Patrick's Cathedral earlier this week. The cathedral only knew that family and friends were requesting a funeral mass for a Catholic and had no idea our welcome and prayer would be degraded in such a sacrilegious and deceptive way. That such a scandal occurred at America's parish church makes it worse. That it took place as Lent was beginning, the annual 40-day struggle with the forces of sin and darkness, is a potent reminder of how much we need the prayer, reparation, repentance, grace, and mercy to which this holy season invites us. At the Cardinal's directive, we have offered an appropriate mass of reparation. End quote. So there you go. The only response from Cardinal Dolan is that. Now that's a strong response. He's not the one who wrote that. That's actually the uh, given by the priest who is in charge of the cathedral. But that's a good start. That is a good start. Now, what I think would be also good would be to um, have a strong statement on the underlying issues at hand with this, with the funeral there, which is fiducia supplicants. That's how this happened. And with the ideology of the flesh that is permeating the world in our time and that we are all expected to just smile and nod and not say anything about and that you're not even allowed to criticize even slightly on platforms such as what I'm talking to you on. Now, it would be very good for the Cardinal to say something, even if it costs him a lot. Good morning to everybody again joining us in the chat. Um, we will now shift over to... Um, Something here, uh, Ed Fieser shared this on Twitter. Uh, it's a good segue into what uh, Cardinal Zen has to say. He's He brings us this long quote from something Cardinal Ratzinger uh, said in 1988. And he's obviously here responding to um, the, the consecration of bishops by the SSPX without permission from Rome. Um the, the church never declared the SSPX in schism, but they did say the act was schismatic. It's also schismatic to, to say things like France, call Francis Paca Papa and to, you know, question whether he's actually the Pope or not. Schismatic acts do not put one in schism. But the um, this is words, I think, that are very important for our time here from Ratzinger because we have to remind ourselves that the sins that we see going on from the hierarchy in our time are not just, they're not merely the result of, or they're not merely just normalizing sins that cry out to heaven for justice, which is bad enough. I mean, that's terrible. There's also another thing that this has a consequence of, and that's people openly talking about now leaving the Catholic church. Even though I don't think terribly highly of people who would go become Eastern Orthodox to avoid sins that are manifesting themselves in the Catholic church that were inspired by problems in the Orthodox church. It means that people didn't do their homework and they're going to be a little surprised when Amoris Laetitia, which is the root cause of most of the stuff that we're seeing today, it's worst ideas came from Orthodoxy. So 
there you go. But here's what Ed Fieser had to say. And if you're not familiar with Ed Fieser, he's a Catholic professor of philosophy. And uh, he's a Thomist. So here's what Cardinal Ratzinger on the responsibility that post-Vatican II churchmen bear for tempting some traditionalist to schism. Quote, a Christian never can or should take pleasure in a rupture, even though it is absolutely certain the fault cannot be attributed to the Holy See. Again, this is in the, this is in the context of the SSPX back then, which is kind of funny that he would say it this way. It is a duty for us to examine ourselves as to what errors we have made, and which ones we are making even now. Schisms can take place only when certain truths and certain values of the Christian faith are no longer lived and loved within the church. The truth which is marginalized becomes autonomous, remains detached from the whole of the ecclesiastical structure, and a new movement when, then forms itself around it. It will not do to attribute, attribute everything to political motives, to nostalgia, or to cultural factors of minor importance. These causes are not capable of explaining the attraction which is felt even by the young, and especially by the young. There is no doubt whatever that a phenomenon of this sort would be inconceivable unless there were good elements at work here, which in general do not find sufficient opportunity to live within the church of today. For all these reasons, we ought to see the, this matter primarily as the occasion for an examination of conscience. We should allow ourselves to ask fundamental questions about the defects of the pastoral life of the church. We want to ask ourselves where there is lack of clarity in ourselves. The Second Vatican Council has not been treated as a part of the entire living tradition of the church, but as an end of tradition, a new start from zero. That's a big admission from Ratzinger. The truth is that this particular council defined no dogma at all and deliberately chose to remain on a modest level as a merely pastoral council, and yet many treated as though it had made itself into a sort of super dogma, which takes away the importance of all the rest. This idea is made stronger by things that are now happening. That which previously was considered most holy, the form in which the liturgy was handed down, suddenly appears as the most forbidden of all things, the one thing that can be safely prohibited. All this leads a great number of people to ask themselves if the church of today is really the same as that of yesterday, or if they have changed it for something else without telling people. This is Cardinal Ratzinger giving an address to the bishops of Chile, July 13, 1988, days after Archbishop Lefebvre's prophetic consecration of bishops without the permission of Rome. And I, again, I think it's funny that he started it by saying the Holy See can't be blamed, because two years before that, everybody got to watch the Holy Father stand there in the same room as people put idols of Buddha and things on top of a tabernacle in Assisi, okay? So to say that the Holy See bears no responsibility, there were two reasons that that consecration really happened of bishops. Besides the fact that Rome was waffling on the whole issue in general, one is the long debate between Ratzinger and Lefebvre, where Archbishop Lefebvre could not get Cardinal Ratzinger to reaffirm the traditional teaching of the social reign of Christ the King. He could not get him to do it. He got him to affirm something called like the universal reign of Christ the King, which is entirely a different thing. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski has an article outlining the differences between the two. One is a new construction after Vatican II. The other, the social reign of Christ the King, is something the church always taught and assumed as being understood until it had to be affirmed verbally in writing by a pope in the 1920s. But the other reason... Like the straw that sort of broke the camel's back was the CC 1986. It just was. Everybody knows that if you're watching what happened, then it was Pacamama 1.0. And a lot of people don't like hearing about it. Always lose subscribers when I mention it, but that's fine. I am dedicated to the truth here. And I, I always like to remind people if we had the social media infrastructure then that we do today, people would have a different under which would have a different way of remembering those days. I guarantee it. Uh <coughs> excuse me yes i'm still getting i'm mostly better but 
Um, still got a little bit of the lingering stuff. Flea says in the chat, when the doctrines of liturgy of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster appear more dignified than a Roman Catholic Mass, it's time to dust off that rosary. Yes, um, that's in reference to that clown mass I showed you here just a minute ago. But let's wrap this up, I think, with something from Cardinal Zen. See, Cardinal Joseph Zen, is he's, an, he's one of those interesting figures who his observations are very much like that of an educated, normal person. I say that with absolute respect. It's one of the things I love about Cardinal Zen. He will flat out tell you, I am not a theologian. He will admit that firsthand. But then he gives a lot of these very cogent, very thoughtful observations about things. And here he's talking about the synod of synodality, because despite what many people think, the synod of sin is not done. Francis just announced uh, the dates of the new the synod of synodality, which I'll bring to you in a day or two on this channel and probably a news video. And this is Cardinal Zen responding to this. And we had to deal with it. So let's get back here to Cardinal Zen. So. How will the synod continue and end, asks the good cardinal. Again, this, this is the, the cardinal Zen is who am I considered to be like the conscience of every man and woman in the church. Every thoughtful Catholic who you know, maybe is not a educated Thomistic scholar, doesn't have a bunch of letters after their name, isn't a world-class speaker, but has the faith. I think cardinal Zen is that voice for most of us. Here's how he, he asked the question, how will the synod continue and end? Let's go over this. Quote, looking at how the first session of the Synod on Synodality ended, we cannot help but be amazed because they tell us that it is not yet clear what Synodality is. Cardinal Relator of the Synod tells us that, quote, we are still learning. Synodality is not a concept. It is a process that seems to be progressing well. But if there's no clear concept of Synodality, with what criterion is it stated that the process was synodal and that the church is becoming synodal? Starting from the etymology of the Greek word, walking together, synodality was given as the theme of this 16th Extraordinary Assembly of the Synod of Bishops. The sub-theme was also given, participation and communion for the mission. Since it is not possible in many languages, including his, to directly translate the word synodality, it is assumed that the sub-theme is a faithful explication of the theme. So without directly studying the synodality, we began to study how to dialogue together to walk together on the path of evangelization. There is a doubt to be resolved. They tell us that synodality is a fundamental constitutive element of the life of the church. But at the same time, they emphasize that synodality is what the Lord expects of us today. Participation and communion are obviously permanent characteristics of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But doesn't saying that synodality is, quote, the thing that the Lord expects of us today mean that it is something new. In order not to see a contradiction in it, we must understand this invitation to synodality, not as having to do something completely new, but as giving a new impulse to something that has always existed in the church. With this understanding, our diocese has actively undertaken this first phase of the synod, the local one, not belonging to any Episcopal conference due to the political situation. We only have the diocesan level of this phase and not that of the Episcopal conference. The diocese conducted 13 consultation assemblies with approximately 1,200 participants. He, the bishop, conducted small groups of spiritual conversations 170 times with 930 participants. There was then an online questionnaire, and in six months, 1,278 responses were collected from 150 communities. The participants must have exceeded to 2,000. Through scientific methods, a synthesis of all this work shows that the most important thing for the diocese is to promote the training for priests faithful, and especially young people. The themes of this training include Parisian expressing oneself and attention and listening, 
responsible participation in discernment and decisions by the established authorities, dialogue in the church with society and between religions. Here I allow myself to open a parenthesis. The diocese of his is one of those with the largest number of his people in the world. The population density in the city favors communication. At the same turn of the two millennia, shortly after the return of the city under the sovereignty of the nation, my predecessor, Cardinal John Baptist Wu, promoted a diocesan synod. Members at the time were around 200. And he goes over some numbers here. And he goes over some more numbers here. And he says, the members are divided into seven groups for organizing the study of seven themes. Formation and ministries of the faithful, youth ministry, social awareness, mission to the nations, marriage and the family, education and culture, training of vocations, and ongoing training of diocesan priests. The method of the trial is one started by the JOC movement and then adopted by many Catholic organizations. This synod reached very wise resolutions so that I, who succeeded Cardinal Wu as bishop of that diocese, only had to follow them without needing to have my own plans in my Episcopal service. I hope that the volume of the proceedings of the synod is still available. I was saying that the diocese did a good, very good job in their first preparatory phase of the synod, but it did not study the exact meaning of the word synodality. By concentrating the study on the generic sense of walking together, no reference was made to the word synod. But the synod of synods are a historic reality. The adjective synodal and the abstract noun synodality come from the word synod. Walk together? Yes, but in the church, who walks together with whom? What is the goal of this journey? Is there a guide that ensures the right direction? Precisely to answer these questions, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith had commissioned its International Theological Commission drop a document entitled Synodality in the Life and Mission of the Church. The commission worked between 2014 and 2017. The text was approved by the prefect for the congregation and published on the 2nd of May, 2018, with the approval of Pope Francis. This document is obviously listed among the documents that concern the theme of the synod, but strangely, the synod secretariat makes little reference to it. Reading the aforementioned document in the voluminous first introductory document of the secretariat of the synod, I cannot dispel the perception that we are faced with two opposing visions of ecclesiology. On the one hand, the church is presented as founded by Jesus on the apostles and their successors, with a hierarchy of ordained ministers who guide the faithful on the journey towards the heavenly Jerusalem. On the other hand, there's talk of an undefined synodality, a, quote, democracy of the baptized. Which baptized people? Do they at least go to church regularly? Are they drawn to the faith of the Bible and the strength of the sacraments? The other vision, if legitimized, can change everything, the doctrine of the faith and the discipline of moral life. Someone will, will call you uh, paranoid for thinking that. They, they say there's no agenda, but this offends our intelligence. How can we forget that note in Amoris Laetitia after the two synods on the family? And that resolution on the Viri Probati, even if it was not included in the post-synodal exhortation of the Amazon. Let's pause here. If you're needing some reference here, the Viri Probati were the idea of ordaining older married men to the Catholic priesthood. Older meaning they, any children they had were adults and had moved away. We're talking retirees are close to that. That was being debated for the synod in uh, the Amazon as a, something they would do there, which of course, if they start there, it would show up in the church everywhere right afterwards. That's how you got communion in the hand. Started as a couple of experiments in some places, and went on and found its way throughout the entire church. He says, how can we not worry when we look at the synodal path in Germany? A group of faithful, it is not known with what title of representation together with more than half but less than two-thirds of the bishops speak almost complacently about the uh, Ted McCarrick problem, indicating that the cause in clericalism, a sign that the constitution of the church has serious problems and needs a radical makeover, overturning the pyramid, and the 
ethics of the flesh of the church also needs to adapt to modern culture. The synodal path has not yet been decisively repudiated. Do we also remember that movement that exploded in Holland in the aftermath of Vatican II with the new Dutch Catechism? As an aside, if you're not familiar with the story of the Dutch Catechism, that is one of the most infamous stories that defined the Vatican II, post-Vatican II period. It says, that which led the church of that country to languish today as if moribund. It does not seem out of place to mention the case of the Anglican community. The poor Archbishop of Canterbury has received a warning from the Archbishops of the Worldwide Anglican Future Conference, which includes 85% of the world Anglican community to repent of having legitimized James Martin pairings. Otherwise, they will no longer recognize his position of authority. In the voluminous document of the Secretariat, perhaps not everyone has noticed that terrible but gratuitous statement, the most feared obstacle to synodality is clericalism, which is often tendentiously considered as the main cause of Ted McCarrick's problems, while it is obvious that the revolution of the flesh in the world has also entered the church and even the seminaries. And is that long list of problems that only synodality would be able to help us address simply there as an inventory? Reading it, I mischievously suspected that what the drafters of the document were interested in was what was mentioned at the bottom of the list. That is, that is some groups with particular tendencies of the flesh who would be uh, who would be treated badly, despised, and cruelly marginalized by the church. The, the multi-letter acronym that we're all familiar with entered for the first time solemnly in a church document. Let's pause. That right there highlighted on your screen is absolutely true. You have never seen that before, that bit of propaganda from the secular world in a church document until here. The only time that that, that, that terminology should ever appear in a church document would be in a forceful letter denouncing it as evil written pro hopefully by a Holy Father in some day in the future. It's the only time that should have ever appeared. But it didn't. Instead, it was legitimized in a church document. Not enough commentary has been done on that by anybody. Colonel Zen continues. Concluding what has been said so far in the first preparatory phase of the Synod, I think that for the promoters of the Synod, this first phase was a great failure. From this phase, they wanted to gather an abundance of experiential facts as a foundation for all subsequent construction of the edifice of synodality. I'm going to check here with a with the pause. Um, just making sure. All right, cool, no problems here. All right, we're going to go back now to. Um, if I can find it, there it is. To um, Cardinal Zen here. But first of all, many as well as our people in his city did not even understand what the promoters wanted. But the quantitative participation of the faithful was also discouraging. Reliable statistics say that it barely reaches 1%, which is understandable both due to the insufficient time given for the consultation and due to difficulties created by the affliction of 2020. Remember how uh, where he lives, how, they, how the authorities there handled that was legendary in its viciousness, okay? Promoters are trying to put a good face on bad luck, saying there's been an enthusiastic response from all sides. The second phase arrives, the continental one. Finally, promoters have more ability to direct the operation. The second general and the rapporteur, together with some facilitators, went in person to six of the seven continental meetings to lead the consultation. For Asia, the Federation of Asian Bishops Conferences was obviously representative, which also includes his diocese and that of Macau, which do not belong to any Episcopal conference people summoned are those who animated the work of the first phase, but who are now well guided towards particular themes of dialogue and with a peculiar method. The emphasis is still on sharing experiences, listening to the experience of people who have no voice in the church, the absent symbol of an empty chair at the table, around which in small groups painful experiences of people excluded from the community are told. 
These experiences obviously arouse emotions, feelings of compassion. These are especially these are especially those with particular tendencies of the flesh, situations of irregular uh, quote unquote matrimony for which they are not accepted. That is excluded. While the church should welcome everyone, and then he quotes Francis. That's an obvious reference to fiducia supplicants. Okay. The peculiar method uses the so-called conversation in the spirit. We pray and then everyone shares their experience. Everyone listens. We pray again and talk again, but integrating what everyone had heard. Please again and check the notes of convergence and points of divergence. Conversation, not discussion. But without adequate debate, how will the problems be resolved? There are problems, so we need to debate. Obviously, the discussion must be based on the word of God and the sacred tradition of the church. The Holy Spirit will guide the discussion to consensus conclusions as in the Second Vatican Council. The prayers must already be accumulated before the meetings. There the Spirit is ready to guide everyone in the discussion. Father Luz Vardi, a Canadian Jesuit, professor at the Gregorian University, says that the method of, quote, conversation in the Spirit does not come from St. Ignatius, but from the Canadian Jesuits. This method is not used for discernment, but to pacify the spirits before discernment, so that we do not immediately start arguing with excited souls, but by opening ourselves to the inspirations of heaven. After all, he says, one cannot discern things that are already certain. If an action is already evidently sinful, one cannot discern whether one can commit it or not. Among the Jesuits, then, the superiors command and the subjects obey, as if they were corpses. Imposing this method is a manipulation to avoid discussion. All psychology and sociology, not faith and theology. That is a description of what he's saying is what those discussions at the Synod were like in Rome. You remember Cardinal Zen actually did go to the Synod in Rome, not to participate, but to actually talk to Francis, which he finally was able to do. That happened right around that same time, and he would have gotten a good, used his connections to get a good uh, understanding of what was going on in Rome at the time. Since several things mentioned were controversial, a beginning of discussion was still able to emerge in the little time left for dialogue in the assembly, with few minutes given to everyone who wanted to speak. The final report of this phase of participation by the Asian Bishops Conference, rather than responding to the issues on which the facilitators are interested, draws heavily on the results of the recent General Conference on the occasion, the 50th anniversary of the founding of that Asian Bishops Conference. This General Conference was a true general mobilization, carefully reflected on the needs present in the Church in Asia. The time coincided exactly with the beginning of the Synod process. It seems that even this second continental phase, still preparatory to the synod itself, must not have satisfied the promoters of the synod. But from synthesis they made of it in the instrumental labors for the true synod, we at least finally have the clear perception that the problems posed for discernment are the structures of the church and the problems of the ethics of the flesh. Meaning, let's pause here. What we are being told, the reason we have the synod, and the reason that is because there are problems in the church, and they come from the fact that the church is hierarchical. Jesus established the church, and the church was hierarchical from the time of its implementation, and the hierarchy developed over time. But apparently, it being hierarchical is now a problem. And the other problem is how the church teaches on matters of, uh, call it the activity suitable to the married state, and those things that people wish were allowed for human beings to do, but are not, according to the law, solemn word of God. Those things, the church is teaching on those matters. And on the hierarchy of the church is the reason we had Ted McCarrick problems. Okay. Now think about that. Think about that all you want. It's nonsense. He's what he's doing. He's calling it out here. Cardinal Zen is calling this out here in his own sort of nice way. He says third, the worldwide phase with those two big problems ahead of it was supposed to be the real synod that was supposed to provide the solution to the problems. I hope that we would return to the procedure tested by many past synods. That is starting with the assemblies where everyone hears everyone 
the status questionatus can emerge clearly. We then proceed to the laborious discussion, but without the help of facilitators. It then concludes with linguistic circuli minores, where concise deliberations are put to practice to be offered to the Holy Father in a confidential manner as advice from his brothers in the Episcopate. It was my great disappointment when I saw this phase had begun with the same method as the continental one, a method that does not favor the solution of problems. Foreseeing this eventuality, I had, as you know, attempted to incite some synod fathers, cardinals and bishops, to insist on the procedure, but in vain, they are gentlemen and reluctant to any gesture of opposition. And there is your statement right there why so many good cardinals, the kinds of cardinals Cardinal Zen is going to be friends with, did have done nothing in the face of all of this weirdness we've seen in the church, especially the last year, but actually going back to since the time Francis emerged on the loggia, because the, the cardinals are nice and they don't want to do any gesture of opposition. That is why. This is why you should not expect too many of the better ones to really do anything meaningful about the legitimacy of Francis question that is getting growing, getting traction every single day because they are reluctant to any gesture of opposition. I think we'll leave his letter at that. You want to read that? I'll put it in my show notes today at returntotradition.org. Okay. It'll be in my show notes here within 15 minutes of this live stream ending. Um, all right. Hold on. What is going on in my chat? Because apparently there's some weird stuff going on in the chat. What are you what, are you trying to incite schism in my chat, uh, DJ or Dub? I'm trying to figure this out because I was going over the Cardinal Zen's letter. This has been happening lately, um, and I'm just very curious to make sure that there is that the uh, inciting schism in my chat earns an instant ban. So don't do it. Meaning, if you're trying to get people to leave the church for some other group, don't do it. And that will get you an instant ban. All right. Are there any comments or questions about any of this in the chat? This is the time. Cardinal Zen's letter is actually very long. That's why I stopped it there. And I just, uh, again, it'll be in the today's show notes, returntotradition.org for your consideration today. If you have not uh, hit the like button yet, please do so. Uh, it's, a, it's a good, it's a Sunday morning, and we will be um, wrapping this up here in a second. All right, folks. It looks like there's no further thoughts. Um, as always, pray for everybody we spoke about today. Uh, the people behind that clown mask I showed you the footage of. Pray for the um, pray for uh, the people organizing the synod and uh, those behind that weird funeral. Pray for Cardinal Dolan who allowed it. And as always, pray for the church. And as Madeline says in the chat, stay with Christ's holy church. Always stay at the foot of the cross. Absolutely, our words of wisdom for today. <laughs> I have a, uh, a good Lenten reflection uh, from uh, Senior Ronald Knox coming up for you in just an, under an hour from the time that this is ending. So anyway, I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria. <laughs>